When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Russell Crowe and Amanda Seyfried star in Fathers and Daughters, the story of a Pulitzer Prize-winning author who checks himself into a mental health facility while his daughter falls for an aspiring novelist. Watch it now on demand before it hits theaters. Also playing on demand is A War, the story of a Danish commander who faces a courtroom trial after a decision he made led to the deaths of 11 civilians during the war in Afghanistan. The latest independent films are ready when you are with movies on demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm a pterodactyl. Nah, I'm just kidding. I'm that singer. And on this episode of Film Spotting SVU, we'll be taking a deep dive into Maria Bamford's semi autobiographical and determinedly oddball Netflix comedy series, Lady Dynamite. And inspired by this series, which pulls from Bamford's experiences with bipolar disorder, as well as her career as a comedian, we thought we'd base this podcast on a central, important aspect of Bamford's life. Yes, at long last, we've done an all-pug episode of the Film Spotting SVU podcast. Allison, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, nobody wants to hear us talk about Milo and Otis for an hour. Well, what about, like, 45 minutes? Let's just table this for another time. Oh, well, in that case, let's look at movies about mental disorders instead. But first, there's a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we highlight three titles that are new on demand. And Matt, you're up this time. What have you got for us? Well, I think this is a movie we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, maybe, as a, as a film in the, in the eight ball segment at the end of the show. But now it's available on VOD, and I could not be more excited, and I just have to talk about it again. It's called Dead Seven. It's directed by Danny Rowe, co-written, co-written and starring Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> it's available on VOD starting on June 7th, and I will read you the plot description here. A post-apocalyptic Western. Not just a Western. Not just a post-apocalyptic movie, Allison. It is a post-apocalyptic Western that follows a group of gunslingers as they look to rid a small town of a zombie plague. So, to recap, post-apocalyptic, western, zombies, co-written and starring Nick Carter of the Backstreet Boys, and plenty of other appearances by other members of other boy bands, including Joey Fatone, Chris Kirkpatrick, Jacob Underwood from... That one, actually, I don't know. O-Town, come on. O-Town. Actually, several members of O-Town were like in this. the only one I remember, Ashley Angel, wasn't he in O-Town? I don't know, but he's not in this one. Maybe he's the only member of O-Town. Surprisingly, a... most of the members of O-Town were available for this film. <laughs> I would have thought they were busy with other things, but apparently they were able to clear a few weeks out of their busy schedules to appear in Dead 7, 
Also, Art Alexicus from Everclear. <laughs> and my favorite of all, John Cicada plays Sheriff Cooper. This is the it's best incredible cast. This is the best cast list of 2016. I'm sorry. Uh, there's no way that there's going to be a cast that's better than this one, which has three Backstreet Boys, one member of 98 Degrees, two members of NSYNC, four members of O-Town. I mean, there's even a member of All for One. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You should be impressed. I am. I I I cannot wait to watch this movie. Uh, if I if there if you put a copy of it in front of it in front of me right now, I would stop doing this podcast and make Allison watch it with me. I'd be really annoyed, but I would do it. Yeah, that's the that's what kind of a good friend you are. So, that's Dead Seven, and that's available on VOD starting on June seventh. Next up, also available on June seventh, is the film Touched with Fire, which stars Katie Holmes and Luke Kirby. They played two poets with bipolar disorder. So this could have been a, a potential uh, a yeah. few shots on this episode. Their art is, I'm reading from my plot description here, it's fueled by their emotional extremes. Uh, when they meet in a treatment facility, their chemistry is instant and intense, driving each other's mania to new heights. They pursue their passion, which breaks outside the bonds of sanity, swinging them from fantastical highs to tormented lows until they ultimately must choose between sanity and love. It really sounds like a movie that would have been appropriate for this podcast. I haven't seen it. Um, and and the premise sounds like it could go a couple of different ways in terms of quality, I mean. But it's actually – this movie has gotten pretty good reviews, um, including uh, David Ehrlich actually gave it a positive review. I saw his on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, the, the, the excerpt here says, Written, directed, edited, scored, and partially lived by bipolar filmmaker Paul Delio, this intense romantic drama solely exists to prove that his so-called quote-unquote disorder isn't a dehumanizing defect. So it's a pretty strong recommendation. Sounds pretty interesting that, that, you know, I guess the fact that the filmmaker has uh, experiences with bipolar disorder certainly makes it more interesting. So that's Touched with Fire, available on VOD on June 7th. And finally, a film that is now playing. This seems like something that would be up Allison's alley. I, I, I feel like you'd be watching this movie on cable at some point, okay, if not on VOD, even it. sooner. It's called Urge. It's directed by Aaron Kaufman. Here's the description of the plot. A weekend getaway takes a dangerous turn when a mysterious nightclub owner played by... Care to guess who plays the mysterious nightclub owner? Nick Carter of the Backstreet Boys. An excellent guess. Sadly not. It's Pierce Brosnan. (laughs) Okay. He introduces a group of friends to a new designer drug. Stripped of their inhibitions, they start living out their wildest fantasies. But what starts out as a night of fun... And partying quickly turns deadly as the island paradise deteriorates into a tropical madhouse. Come on. Tropical madhouse. You're in. Add me at tropical madhouse. You're in. You're all the way in. And did I mention Danny Masterson is one of the people in this movie? I'm so You want to see him go crazy on a designer drug. Admit it. Absolutely. Alison Lohman also in it. You're guessing that I haven't already seen that. (laughs) I'm very intrigued. I've been to Sunday. This sounds like a movie that would have been like you would have watched at like 1.30 in the morning on on like premium cable in the 90s when you couldn't sleep. And you would have been like, that movie was fantastic. But I can't ever tell anyone I liked it because I'm too embarrassed. But uh, that's the magic of VOD. You can watch these things in, in the privacy of your own home and no one will ever know. So that is Urge. Urge. That is available now on VOD. It's time for me to be less cautious. You think I'm ready to date. Good. Because I've already set you up with someone I know. He's bisexual. But he also has a crippling meth addiction. Sounds good. 
was on top of the world. I had it all. Maria, we're gonna talk movies, TV, music, fashion. Welcome to the big leagues, baby girl. I'm tired, overwhelmed. I can't do it. I am so filled with energy. Every episode of Film Spotting SVU, we let you pick out our main review by voting on one of three choices. And this time around, we gave you three comedy series Maria Bamford's Netflix original Lady Dynamite, Louis C.K.'s short lived HBO multi camera sitcom Lucky Louie, and Rob Schneider's attempt at an authentic autobiographical comedy show of his own, Real Rob. And Lady Dynamite ran away with nearly 60% of the vote, leaving Lucky Louie and Real Rob in the dust. Maria Bamford is a stand-up comedian famous for comedy that's both surreal and personal, in which she talks about her experiences with bipolar disorder, about her family, and about her romantic life. Her Netflix series Lady Dynamite, uh, which was created by South Park writer Pam Brady and Arrested Development creator Mitchell Hurwitz, is a more accurate reflection of Bamford's comedy than honestly I would have ever guessed possible as someone who has listened to a fair amount of it. In the series, which consists of 12 half-hour-ish episodes, Bamford plays a version of herself with the series skipping back and forth between three time periods. There's a present in which Bamford has returned to Los Angeles to figure out how to resume her career and her personal life without falling back into patterns that led to her downward spiral, reuniting with her adoring but not always terribly effective manager Bruce, played by Fred Malamed. Then there's the recent past, which is done in gray, gray tones, and in which Maria's returned home to Duluth to live with her parents for a while. They're played by Ed Begley Jr. and Mary Kay Place, and to get treatment for a, a kind of meltdown that she had and for her diagnosis. And then there's the more distant past, done in the brightest colors, in which Maria's career is taking off and she gets a lucrative spokesperson gig for a company not unlike Target and also rushes into an engagement with a stuntman played by Dean Kane, all the while experiencing a serious manic phase. So, Matt, there is a dark version of this story, which is basically about how someone has a meltdown while everyone around her enables or encourages her because her mania is, ironically, making her work better. And it's also about a romantic relationship with terrible boundary issues and a bunch of friendships or frenemieships, often, with the same problem. But Bamford and the show creators opt for a tone that is relentlessly chipper, even when dealing with what were clearly difficult moments in Bamford's life, uh, sometimes taking dips into the surreal with things like Maria's pet pug, Bert, who speaks in a voice not unlike that of Werner Herzog. So, Matt, what did you think of the contrast between subject matter and tone in this series, and did you like it? Uh, I, I feel like I, this is going to be an unpopular uh, opinion. I didn't really like it. This show didn't really work for me. Uh, I, I didn't get through the whole thing. I, I, I couldn't take much of it. <laughs> How I, far did you get in? I, I watched five episodes, which is probably four more than I would have watched if we were not recording this podcast. I, I don't I, I can I respect everything about it. I can see the craftsmanship involved. There's very talented people involved. And I, I, I sort of see a lot of the smart things they're doing, but something about it just it was abrasive to me. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't really laugh. I think that was the main thing. I just didn't. I didn't find it funny. Uh, the and you mentioned the 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 contrast between the dark subject matter and the sort of candy colored world of the show. And I don't I don't want to say that's the wrong way to approach it because I think it's an interesting way to approach it. 
I just found it a little distancing. I just didn't like I, I felt like the real story here would be a lot more interesting. Or at least I would have learned something maybe in addition to hypothetically laughing, which I did not do in this case. But I, I don't know. I, I, I that was my that was my what I'm sure is going to get me some angry responses. I I really did not care for this show. Had you known anything about Maria Bamford before this? I certainly knew, knew her by reputation. I hadn't seen a lot of her comedy. I'd seen little bits and pieces. I watched some YouTube clips of her stand up. And laughed more probably at those than I did at the show. And I, you said you felt it was a very faithful kind of adaptation of her sort of style. I guess I didn't watch enough of it to really say whether it was or not. I, it seemed like to me like the stuff in, in the in the in the stand up that I liked was more like wordplay stuff and more mm. verbal humor. And the show, there's not a lot of like jokes in the show. It's much more like absurdity and weird sight gags and strange digressions. And I don't know, maybe that just uh, that kind of humor just isn't my cup of tea. It may not be. I, I, I feel like I can think of examples of times where I like that and other times where I don't. This is just one of those times where I don't. I'm, did you like it? I'm guessing you probably I did. did. I liked it quite a bit more than you did, though I do also find it a bit distancing. I think the show, for better and for worse, dips you into, like, attempts to recreate uh, her mindset, you know, in ways that I, I think sometimes leave me totally behind. Yeah. But I also admire, even when I felt kind of disconnected from it emotionally, I admire its determination to stick sure. to that point of view. No it matter has what. some chutzpah. Absolutely. It, it and I, I can does. totally respect that as well. It is its own thing. Yeah. I did find it re- really interesting in, I don't know, conju- conjunction with like Kimmy Schmidt. For instance, mm-hmm. which I haven't seen, yeah, and uh, and Crazy Ex Girlfriend, which is a show that's also I think got a kind of critical following, if not necessarily a giant popular one, mm-hmm. the CW show. Uh, in terms of this recent wave of of series that are about mania or trauma or you know like the the various uh, things that these characters have expressed, who are still determined to keep this stiff upbeat, upper lip, or not even that, like an upbeat, almost like almost delusionally upbeat yeah. uh, attitude. Mm-hmm. And I, I really enjoy that. I enjoy that idea a lot. I think maybe more in theory than it always played out in yeah. uh, Lady Dynamite. But I, I think there is something to that, especially given that it's about three female, These show, those shows are all about female characters, right. that I think is a contrast to the expected way to show mental illness often is that it's doom and gloom and kind of like, you know, and and I think especially when you see Maria in her kind of manic phase in the past in mm-hmm. this, it also makes it clear in in ways that are fairly complicated. And I don't know that you got this far in the show that that it, it kind of benefited her in some ways while also like leading her down a path that was clearly right. like going towards destruction. Yeah. You know, and I think that there is something to that that feels new and fresh to me. Yeah, and I can see that. To me, it's like that aspect of it was new and fresh. The, the, to some extent, the problem to me was that it was just one of so many shows that we've both seen where it's like the comedian's life, the autobiographical comedian's life. And all, I felt like the stuff that made it unique were these things that you're talking about that it's sometimes addressed in interesting ways. But again, to me, a lot of times it was just kind of uh, – once it approached something really sensitive, it would kind of – break the fourth wall or do something absurd. And maybe that just speaks to the core of 
who she is as a comedian and her sort of perspective on the world. But I don't know. The other thing was that a lot of times I felt like despite the very unique premise, the episodes, the stories still felt kind of like very cliched. And when they would get really cliched, what they would do is make fun of the fact that they were telling a very cliched story from like, you know, that you've seen in a million sitcoms, not just in Seinfeld or Louie or Curb Your Enthusiasm. And I don't know, that that's something I've seen a lot lately. It remind, and in a way, this show reminded me of Deadpool, which was a film Ooh, that... Interesting. That, well, just in the sense that it was a film that thought it was very experimental and constantly pointed out its its experimentalness and its, and its creativity and its edginess. And I, a lot of times I felt like that almost gave it it was using that as an excuse to tell what was still basically something we had seen before and it felt very familiar and i that was i i i like this in a way more than deadpool because i didn't like deadpool at all and here at least I, I i respected what was going on even if i just didn't connect with it but i did have a similar reaction to the two of them i feel that there is something maybe a little uh, i don't know more I don't know how to put this. The sitcom, and I watched some of Lucky Louie, and Lucky Louie does this as well. The sitcom is such a traditional pop culture ingrained format, and also one that is profoundly terrible in some ways, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Like, not, I, I enjoy sitcoms, I watch them, but like the kind of, the like, oh, and in the space of half an hour, we had some laughs, and a problem was solved, and we learned a lesson. Let's never speak of it again, you know, like right. that. And I think that. In a show like this and a show like Lucky Louie and a lot of other shows that have kind of come up, I think, as you said recently, there's this awareness of of pushing off the format because it's it's so tied to what a half-hour comedy, like a format that the half-hour comedy is supposed to be, mm-hmm. you know, that I think that maybe too much is made off of the the idea of using it to take on subject matter that is darker or characters that are, that would never appear on a kind of old fashioned sitcom. Yeah. You know? And I like the idea of using this kind of very sunny format to tell a darker story. I just felt like this show did at least the part, the half that I, you know, the half of the series that I watched, it just didn't really feel like it got dark enough for me. I wanted a little bit more, darkness so that here's another question then yeah is there such thing as a series that is too personal that something where you just mm. it doesn't let you in maybe maybe i mean it's a good question you know as you said this has become its own mini genre yeah i mean real rob whatever that is like <laughs> <laughs> that we may never watch it but you know is i mean part of the reason we were interested in that is the idea of it as the failed attempts at getting a critically the confessional, acclaimed, critically acclaimed, yes. you know, raw kind of, uh, digging deep the version of something that is, uh, a series equivalent of what the best stand-up comedy is supposed to be these days. Right. right. All confessional yes. and truth telling. Yeah. Right. So then I guess I, I, I am curious about this. I, cause I didn't feel on occasion I felt that way about this show mm-hmm. where there were times where I was like, I feel like I'm getting sometimes like a direct feed off of someone's like internal, you know, internal state of mind. And I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, like there are other times where I felt like, I mean, that's part of what makes this show so kind of idiosyncratic, but I, I wonder if there, there's a way in which it goes too far. Yeah, it's true. This show is not meeting you halfway, really. It's it's marching to its own its own beat. And I did sort of like the idea that by having the three different time periods, you're able to kind of compress 
a sense of kind of bipolarness that the the, the mood swings because the show the show can have these kind of mood swings where there can be these very manic scenes and then then you go to Duluth and the and the they you know color shifted so it's very blue and drab maybe those scenes needed to be a little darker and sadder though they still try to make them with the parents you know kind of goofy and wacky there's a scene that I saw involving cobbling and uh, the cobbler's assistant that scene really baffled me did I miss something there I think that was just I'm assuming something from her life yeah, that was very strange to me. I I don't know the parents. Maybe I, I maybe it would be more interesting. And I I hate do even that I'm doing this and like saying like we should do this instead because that's not really my place. But like, what if like the L.A. stuff was super exactly the same, but the stuff in Duluth instead of still being a comedy was like a like one floor with the cuckoo's nest. Like maybe <laughs> that would be kind of amazing. I don't know. I mean, there are scenes. There's a really funny joke in which she is left at one point alone with a friend's dog who is like, I've done hospice work before. Um, and then like says to the dog, like lights out and leaves them. And then she's like, the dog tried to kill me several times over the course of the night. And there are things like that, that I think are, are just really odd and really effective jokes. Mm-hmm. But you certainly, certainly that portion, the darker portion of the show is not terribly bleak no it is just supposed to be different i will say uh, the the show does also have a fantastic supporting cast and like guest stars and i really enjoyed seeing just who would show up next there were people i was definitely surprised to see like dean kane i thought it was quite he's kind of his best role he's very good years and years yeah Yeah. i thought he was really good and uh, i did like fred melamed i thought was probably the the standout of the supporting cast yeah you didn't even get to see the joke the extended joke in which he makes t-shirts of her and she doesn't want them. And then they get sent to Africa (laughs) and then child soldiers start wearing them and saying that Maria Bamford, Bam Bam, uh, Keeps him safe. And what episode bullets. was that? That was pretty funny. Maybe I it's, should watch it that. It develops episode. over multiple episodes. Oh, it's a, it's yeah. a runner. It's a it's a good it's an ongoing joke. So would I mean? Do you think that I should keep going? Does it is this one of the shows where stereotypically, as people always say, stick with it? The first eight or nine hours are pretty rough, <laughs> and then but after the first fifteen or sixteen hours. The next 12 hours are, are better, and then the, the, like right around hour 30 is where the show gets really cooking. I won't say that because I don't think that really ever works with a comedy. Yeah. If it's – especially one that I think is very as consistent off the bat as this. I will say this. I think that the best joke that the show does – or the best – not even – joke is the wrong word. The best uh, like kind of trope that the, the, the show attempts is one – the one of being – having a character, a main character who has no idea of normalcy Mm -hmm. and like what it is like to be her and to kind of feel like you're constantly floating free. And when people come at you with like, I don't know, you know, like uh, with her relationship with Dean Cain, where basically he moves in right away and they get engaged instead of breaking up and all kinds of things where like she keeps kind of going along with, or sometimes volunteering these things without any sense that with any remove at all, you'd be like, that's a terrible idea. And you compounded it with a more terrible idea. You know, and I think the same way with like her relationship with the agent she gets uh, played by Catherine Hahn, who's very funny. Uh, You know, the idea that you, especially in this context of Los Angeles show business, hire all of these people who are supposed to tell you what to do. And none of them have your best interests in mind, but you don't know what your best interests are. So you say, Oh, Okay constantly and i think that there is something there that is is very funny and very sad 
All right. Well, a split decision on this one. I was I was I was a little disappointed, a little frustrated. But that's okay. I mean, I again, I respected a lot of what this show was doing. I like the fact that it exists, that Netflix is doing these crazy shows, you know? Like the, I, nowadays you probably I would, you know, I was going to say, well, you wouldn't see this show on television. Nowadays you would cuz TV is getting pretty bold and experimental anyway. But I think part of that is Netflix's willingness to also do the same thing and you got to compete with them and and I think that's part of the reason. So uh, I just I, I sort of a show that I kind of wanted to like, but I got to be honest, it did this one didn't work for me. But uh, if you want to check it out, Allison was a fan. It's Lady Dynamite. It is available now on Netflix. All right, our topic for two shots, inspired by Lady Dynamite, is we did films, not TV shows, about mental illness. Uh, I'm sure they're all going to be just as sunny and upbeat, right, Allison? Absolutely. Lots of comedies. Only mental illness comedies. Yes. It's, uh, yeah. it's a very small subject. Very, right? very small subject, yeah. No, these, these films are going to be a lot darker. But, you know, I, I think that we picked some ones that, that show different aspects and different types of mental disorders. Yes. So we'll, we'll And show. are very good. And that are very good. Yeah. All right. Well, Matt, we have, we have two picks that fit well together. So why don't you start? You have the earlier Mine one. Mine is, yeah, chronologically, I need to go first. It is the film Clean Shaven, available right now on Hulu. This is from 1994. Uh, it's about as far from Lady Dynamite as I can imagine a depiction of mental illness. Uh, you, you can you can watch it right now on Hulu, Clean Shaven. It's available there through the Criterion Collection. It's a film about a man who's suffering from schizophrenia. And it attempts to use the language of cinema to essentially give you a taste of what life might be like to wrestle with this thing. Um, the movie does have a, a pretty good story, but it's it's more focused on the experience of the world through this character, through this man, Peter's perspective, and trying to understand and trying to make the audience empathize with his his life, his troubled brain, and his way of seeing the world. And the way that the director, Lodge Kerrigan, does that is with image and particularly sound. It's really just incredible. The sound design in this movie is one of the most sophisticated, visceral, and at times disturbing that I've seen in a really long time. There's this constant hum of background noise from radios, from appliances, or just this constant, like, thrum in the background, and it's always there. And it sometimes it gets so loud that it overwhelms the dialogue on the soundtrack. Just like there's this, you know, like, imagine, like, just not being able to, like, turn the rest of the world off. Even when you're talking to someone, and they're talking to you and saying, hey— Listen to me. Concentrate on me. Just how difficult that might be if you just constantly are hearing these things and you have a hard time controlling them. After 
uh, the movie is very short. It's only like 79 minutes, 80 minutes. And just after that much time, it's very easy to see how that could drive a man insane. Uh, the, the plot involves Peter, the main character, going home to find his daughter. And again, that's a pretty basic task, a basic story, but it's it's in the details. It's in the movie showing you how difficult his illness makes even simple things, like he can't look in mirrors. Um, so he's constantly covering them with newspapers. And at one point, a reflection in a car window freaks him out so much that he punches it with and destroys it, basically. Um, and then there are these very disturbing sequences. Frankly, they're way more unsettling than... I'm trying to think if there's any horror movie I've seen this year that disturbed me more more than than this movie, and I'm I'm coming up a blank here. But he tries to cut his hair and shave, and then there's one scene that's really grueling where he's picking at one of his fingernails, and I think you can guess where it goes from there. That they are just unbelievably um, chilling and very very hard to watch. The other thread in the movie is that there is this dead girl and there is a search for her killer and that's the detective on the case trying to figure out who killed her and begins to believe that Peter is the killer. And to be totally honest, I thought mm, at times that this storyline was mostly there to kind of give some semblance of a commercial hook to a movie that otherwise would not have one. And I didn't really care for a ton of the scenes with the detective that said the way that the movie kind of combines the two things peter's quest to find his daughter the detective's quest to find the killer and the way that they kind of dovetail and play out together and resolve together i actually liked so maybe maybe it works better than i initially gave it credit for while i was watching it but i hadn't seen this movie before it's uh, you know rightfully uh famous it's in the criterion collection launched large lodge kerrigan's career he hasn't made a ton of films but uh, uh now is working on that the the tv series of the girlfriend experience which I haven't seen, but uh, I, I would like to. I think he's such a talented filmmaker at putting you inside the headspace of a character and letting you experience the world the way they do for a, a little while. And if you haven't seen this one like I hadn't before this week, I'd really recommend it. It is clean shaven, and it is available now on Hulu. I have seen The Girlfriend Experience, the star show, and I like it a lot. Kerrigan co-directed and co-wrote it with Amy Simetz, who is another indie filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And it it feels in that way that uh, I think we're seeing a little bit more of. It feels like it occupies this fascinating spot between TV and film. You know, that right. is this potentially... Based on a film. Yes, based on the and directed by filmmakers, film. really, yes. not TV makers traditionally. Right. And with like two people who are kind of they do everything, the whole thing. right? Yeah, yeah. They switch off episodes and they wrote it together, right? So uh, it's it's if you have a Stars subscription, which I know not everyone does, but it is it is worth the look and also worth sticking with a bit. Mm. I think it is not one of those series that you mentioned where you're like, oh, eight hours later it'll be great, but it definitely moves at an indie film pace okay. and not a television pace. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I am also a big fan of Watch Kerrigan, which is why my pick is also one of his films. <laughs> It is the movie he made 10 years later, Keen, which is available for rent. 
Uh, it is the name of his main character, William Keane, who's played by Damian Lewis, uh, who has since kind of broken big uh, with Homeland yep. and with other work, but, uh, you know, was uh, an up-and-comer at this point. And the movie is entirely based around his performance. Uh, as with Clean Shaven, this is a movie that really tries to put you inside the head of someone with a mental illness to give you this experiential version of what they're, they're going through on a day-to-day. And in this case, uh, William Keane, I think, very clearly has schizophrenia and schizophrenia that is not treated. But he spends his days wandering Port Authority, which is the big bus station in New York and a fairly grubby place, um, looking for his daughter, Sophie, who he insists was abducted from Port Authority a few months earlier. Uh, And he is obviously not the world's most reliable narrator. Over the course of the movie, you start to wonder if it really has been only a few months since Sophie was abducted. He, uh, he calls someone who seems to be his ex-wife who doesn't want to talk to him. And other times you wonder if maybe there is a Sophie at all or if he just read about this and kind of fixated on it and made it his own. But long stretches of the movie follow Keen as he wanders, like, wanders the bus station, asking people if they've seen his daughter, giving a description, and, uh, and then kind of self-medicating with booze, with drugs, uh, with sex when he can get it. And uh, he lives in an, a kind of cheap-looking motel where he meets a woman, a single mom, and her daughter, played by Amy Ryan and Abigail Breslin, which is uh, quite a duo, and who Keen befriends. And as is the case with so much of this movie, because the main character kind of like goes from through phases of being very, uh, very grounded and very together, and then going through other phases where he is the person who you avoid making eye contact with, uh, you know, on right. the subway or, or in the bus station, mm-hmm. uh, you are filled with dread both for him and for anyone around him because he is someone who cannot necessarily hold it together, even when he really wants to. And there's a scene in this in which he tries very hard. He knows that he can't lose the thread, and he does for a little bit, and he kind of pulls it back together. And it is almost unbearably suspenseful, because he is taking care of Abigail Breslin's character, Kira, at that moment. And you were so frightened for her, and for him, because you know that he would... uh, if he could, if he did anything to hurt her, it would be unbearably damaging to him. But it's it's an incredible performance from Damian Lewis, who is I think on on camera, basically the whole movie. the 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 movie follows, stays in his space. Uh, the cinematography is very claustrophobic. It stays like in kind of close ups of his face, and then follows his eye, his line of sight on occasion to see what he's looking at. But it is. It stays with him in this way that it can almost like jump inside his head as he uh, talks to himself, as he kind of like, as people avoid him or trust him, you know, it puts you in this world that has no, no toeholds. You can't really get a sense of what the reality is. Uh, It reminds me at times of Memento, if Memento were kind of, all gimmicks were stripped away and you just had someone who was like wandering Mm. with seemingly with only this like bit of history to cling on to unable to escape it. That's interesting. Yeah. But it is certainly not a fun watch, but I think a really immersive one in terms of schizophrenia and, and like, and what it's like to have this kind of idea fixed in your head that 
you're unable to get away from. Um, so that is Keen, and it is available for rent. Uh, that, I've seen that film as well. It's been a while, but it's a really good one, too. I was reading here on, on Wikipedia, I never knew this, that he made an entire other movie sort of about the same subject called In God's Hands that was never released due to, quote, irreversible negative damage. Huh. And it starred Maggie Gyllenhaal and Peter Sarsgaard, and it was about the dis- disintegration of a family after a child had been abducted. Never knew any of this. And then with, with basically because that film was lost, he started over from scratch and then made Keen. Huh. That's fascinating. Yeah. Interesting. That almost sounds like the prequel to Keen, actually. Well, anyway, I guess that explains part of the reason why he's made so few films over the years. He made another one and it was lost. All right. My next pick is one of convenient timing, basically. Uh, last week, I was asked to host... A Q&A at BAM, one of the great movie theaters here in Brooklyn, with the director of First Blood, Ted Kochif. And so to prepare for the film, I rewatched it for, I don't know, maybe the fifth time, the sixth time, who knows. And that was right around when we started preparing for this podcast, so I had the subject in my mind. And I realized while I was watching it that while I had never thought of it in those terms, First Blood, which you can rent right now, is really a movie about mental illness, specifically post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, If you've never seen the original First Blood and you only know it by its reputation or more by the reputation of the main character, Rambo, and where the the series went in the three sequels where he became this, like, unstoppable super soldier, that probably sounds pretty silly, but the first movie which is based on a very dark novel by David Morrell, is very different. It's more like a war movie that's been mixed with Frankenstein than some kind of, you know, I don't know, fun action movie, popcorn action movie. Stallone's character, Rambo, he's this decorated Vietnam veteran. He's been wandering the country for a while. The movie was made in the early 80s. The book was written in the early 70s, so it's he's a little bit older than the character was when when it was written. Uh, and he arrives in this small town in the Northwest. He's looking for an old army buddy. And when he arrives, he finds out the guy has died of cancer from Agent Orange. So he's essentially he's lost everything now. And he's wandering through this town. He's spotted by the sheriff, who's played by Brian Dennehy in a really good performance. And immediately the sheriff tries to get him out of the town. He's worried that this basically this dirty hippie of an ex-soldier is going to cause trouble but rambo because he's so upset he's you know he's been basically he's been broken mentally and so he refuses to kind of just acquiesce and he starts to fight back and then he's arrested and when he's arrested and then mistreated by all of the local uh sheriffs and cops who are mean and dumb and everything he begins having these very intense flashbacks of his time in vietnam where he was tortured and he snaps and then breaks out and goes on the run And that's sort of where the Frankenstein element comes in. Rambo is basically this weapon that's been created by the U.S. government that they can't control. And now he's let loose on his masters, who are represented mostly in the film by this guy, Colonel Troutman, who who was his former commanding officer and now has has the unenviable task of trying to bring Rambo in and to get him to stop. He doesn't kill a lot of people, but just kind of... uh, bothering all of these soldiers and and maiming them and putting people in the hospital and causing chaos. And, you know, maybe it's... I've seen the sequels a lot of times, too. Maybe that's why. Every time I see the original First Blood, I'm always surprised. I forget how sad it is. And it's interesting to, to contrast this movie now, all these years later, 
with the way our country has sort of taken to veterans of our more recent wars, who I, I think they're generally respected a great deal. And, and even if they're, you know, if the government, if the services for them don't always do a good job of taking care of them, we, as a, we have a different opinion of what they did and who they are than, than you see in, in First Blood in 1982. It's kind of jarring to see now the way that basically this guy, just for being a veteran, is just, you know, these damaged goods. And the fact that, you know, post-traumatic stress was barely even a concept at this time. So it's not even like they're they're not treating him. It's like they don't even recognize that he has an illness, that there's anything wrong with him. And that's what makes it kind of a tragedy. It's that Rambo isn't, in their eyes, a victim. He's a problem. And so as his illness, as his trauma gets like the worst of him and he lashes out, he sort of proves the cops right. And it's like this vicious cycle that is impossible to stop. So as much as I can enjoy the sequels for what they are, they do kind of retroactively lessen a lot of this movie's impact. If you haven't seen it, it it might surprise you with how bleak and sad it is. It would have been even more bleaker and sad if they had went with the original ending, which they, they, it has a probably a too happy of an ending, I would say, but right up until that point, it's a pretty tough little movie and it's worth watching. It's first blood. It is available right now for rent. Uh, it's funny with both First Blood and with Rocky, where I feel like people have an idea of yes, what they are like. That absolutely. Those first films are surprising when they're you go gritty, back. They're gritty. They're very tough. The first Rocky is a is a very sweet. It's it's like a it's it's, it's a character study. It's a character study of a guy who happens to be a boxer. It's not a rousing boxing picture. Right. Uh, and then they became and then a they, series of right. rousing cheese ball boxing pictures. It's absolutely true. Which no, are a good enjoyable point. of their own right. Yes. But, uh, but something different. All right. For my second pick, I went with uh, the first feature of a well-known director, uh, Jane Campion, actually. Maybe one of the most established female directors like working in the, the larger global circuit. Her first film was a 1989 film called Sweetie, which is available on Hulu. And is one of a few that I think... Campion has made that deal with the reality of mental illness and sometimes just the accusations of mental illness. In this one, uh, there's a woman named Kay who is the main character, played by Karen Colston. She's very quiet, uh, repressed, you might say. The the main quality in her her personality is that of superstition. She gets into a relationship and basically breaks up a man's relationship with his fiance based on a prediction uh, by a fortune teller who tells her they were destined to be together and starts dating a boy named this guy, Louis. Uh, except uh, after we catch them a year later, it's things have started to go south in their relationship. She gets fixated over this tree that he plants and this idea that it's going to somehow destroy their relationship or become a, a symbol if it dies of their dying relationship. And it seems to actually work in that she starts being unable to have sex with him. They start sleeping in separate rooms. And then her sister, Dawn, nicknamed Sweetie and played by Genevieve Lemon, who's fairly incredible, shows up at their house, actually breaks in and, and shows up with a man that she claims is her boyfriend, who she also seems to have only recently met. 
And Sweetie has, I don't think they ever diagnose her in the movie, but she has what I would say is borderline personality disorder. She is impulsive, completely free of a filter, manipulative, childlike, sexual, and destructive. She is, in that way, everything that Kay isn't in a way that goes, you know, entirely too far. She is this force of chaos. But uh, Lewis is entranced with her because in that way, she is everything that Kay is not. And so are their parents, Kay and Sweetie's parents, who show up in the story not long after she does, and who, especially her father, clearly indulges his, his daughter, his other daughter, in, in ways that are unhealthy, um, especially in her showbiz aspirations. She's convinced that she can be an actress or she can be famous, though her main proof of this seems to be a trick in which she stands on a chair and then kind of like steps on it so it tilts over and she like, you know, steps off of it. It is not exactly a trick on which you can base a career, but she seems fairly convinced. And it's, this movie is so odd and so hard to shake. I think because it shows it shows a, a kind of mental mental disorder in a way that is so clearly based on personal experiences. Uh, I think that Cambion's mother had severe depression, but also on the outside from the perspective of a sibling who understands that her, her sister, that there is, is like unwell in a certain way, but also deeply resents everyone for not basically acknowledging that right away and for not somehow uh, dealing with that. You know, and it's uh, there's someone in my extended family who has a sibling with borderline personality disorder. And I thought about that person all the time watching this because so many of his experiences, I think, echo this movie in which you feel like both the way someone burns so bright and their incredible neediness and destruction can feel like they eclipse you in two different ways, mm. you know, and the fact that this is so grounded in Kay's perspective and it's so almost like warped in their, in her perspective in that it's so filtered by her sense of like injustice and outrage. Uh, it, it feeds this sometimes like almost grotesque or like bent version of family family as this, like as something that's a, at times a burden, you know, family that you can't get away from even when you want to, they come breaking into your house. It's uh, it's, it's a great movie in, in a very, off kilter way and apparently the and i can see this i read this afterwards cinematography was inspired in part by diane arbus which i think you can see in the the compositions which are all over the place uh in terms of where they put people in the frame but it's a movie i like a lot uh and especially if you're a jane campion fan i think you see a lot of traces of her voice in it uh as this like low budget early start when she was fairly young uh so it is definitely worth a look that is sweetie and it is on hulu Okay, time for Singer and Wilmore's completely concise and totally succinct new release roundup. We're going to talk about three movies that are currently in theaters. We haven't seen this Friday's releases yet, so we'll focus on what's already available, starting with a movie that, based on the box office results, I would say almost no one who's listening to this will have seen because it made something like $4.6 million for the whole weekend, not just Friday, a pitiful, really depressing amount of money. That is pop star, colon, never stop, never stopping. And let me tell you something. They are going to stop. There's never going to be another pop star movie. 
uh, after this, after that kind of box office result. And there may never be another Lonely Island movie, unfortunately, after that as well. But Allison, what do you think? Was this uh, the, the, the audience was not interested. Should they have been? Yeah, this is a really funny movie. It's, it's funny. Basically, it's, a, it's an attempt to update Spinal yeah, Tap. Yeah, it's Spinal Tap 2.0. Yeah, it's totally. a documentary. It's about a character who is sort of like Justin Bieber and sort of like a member of the Beastie Boys and sort of like Macklemore and sort of like a boy band member. I think they did a good job of making him not anyone specific and just taking bits and pieces to make a very believable sort of figure who right. resembles a lot of different people. And who is basically a, a stand-in for contemporary fame, like basically contemporary yes. celebrity in all of its weirdness, including the way you can be deeply, intensely famous one minute, and then people can basically be done with you or turn on you right. overnight. They can love you the, on Monday, and on Tuesday they can despise you, and they can love despising you and love watching you fall. Yeah, and you have Andy Samberg as Connor for real, that character. And uh, I think it's actually it's it's about as good a use of Andy Samberg as you can find, mm-hmm. especially in the way he's good at playing like the well-meaning but oblivious doofus. Yeah, sweet, sweet idiots. Yes, who like even when he is a jerk... You like, he's it. very likable, yeah. even when he's doing horrible things. Right. And like so much of this movie is about why he has been shaped, his character has been shaped by being in a bubble of approval. Right. Like whether it's all the sycophants or the, the people, his publicist, his manager, who just tell him he's so great, or the online fans who constantly make memes out of right. whatever and he validate his yes. stupidity and, you know, doing putting his whole life online and on Snapchat and everything. Yeah. What is your favorite? Do you have like one favorite moment in this movie? One favorite moment. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't overall, I would say the weakness in a weird way is this are some of the songs like the Lonely Island songs are always so great. And I felt that this wasn't really their A material. It's more like their BB plus material. Because it's supposed to be about terrible songs, which was be, what I was going to yeah. say. That's sort of the, the one issue. And I thought this film was funny and I liked it. But I think the idea is that Connor's new album is terrible and that it tanks. And that's sort of where the sort of spinal tappy sort of rise and mostly fall comes from. But at a certain point, the songs are pretty crummy and they're not that funny. And you're just like, well, I'm watching a movie about an idiot who's making playing bad music. And like at a certain point, I think that joke wears a little bit thin, but I did like the song about, uh, we're, we, we're not necessarily family friendly, but I'll family friendly this and say wanting to have sex with a woman or, she wants him to have sex with her yes. the way the military screwed Bin Laden, <laughs> let's say. And yes. that song I thought was phenomenal and catchy and weird and hilarious. And that, that scene I liked a lot. And then there's a lot of little cameos, which I thought were pretty great. There's a one of the most famous musicians of the 20th century, I won't spoil who, shows up to kind of like – like make fun of him after make fun of Connor after one particularly dumb thing he does, which made me laugh very hard. And uh, there, you know, there's other sort of comedians who show up in very small roles. And a lot of those I thought were great too. Yeah. My two favorite things I would say are there's a throwaway shot when Connor starts his meltdown of, of like news coverage. Oh yeah. Passed out on a hoverboard. That then catches the yes. fire. It lasts. Like, oh, that two wasn't seconds. even the one I was thinking oh, of. That but yes. was my favorite. It was just like it was perfect because like right. so, he's someone, passed like, out on a hoverboard and he's up. still rolling yes. forward. <laughs> Very so funny. Good. 
The other thing I loved is the TMZ oh, thing yes. that's making right. fun of TMZ. I completely blanked yeah. on that, and With, that is fantastic. Yes, Will, like, Arnett Will Arnett is Harvey Levin. Yes, and then constantly... Chelsea Peretti, mm-hmm. Mike Birbiglia, and Eric Andre are some of the people in there. Fantastic. It, it is, like, perfect. Yeah, th- those guys, the TMZ guys, they deserve. They've been. They've. They're so ridiculous. They des- They were just ripe for someone to make fun of them. And uh, they did not miss. The Lonely Island did not miss with that satire. They yeah. really skewered those guys, but good. I thought you were going to say the thing with the newscast was where there's a scene where Connor has a onstage embarrassment, and he's yelling at his entourage, how did we let this happen? You know, it's, no one's, it's everyone's fault but him, basically. And meanwhile, while they're yelling at each other backstage, there are screens, there are TV screens, and CNN is on in the background saying things like, oil prices skyrocket 30% in two days or something. And you do get the sense that there is, the world is falling apart while people obsess over Connor, Connor's uh, penis, basically. Yes, yes. And I thought that was a very trenchant observation. I will say, though, it did make me think that this material, as funny as this movie is, these guys have kind of done this before. Like, it's very much in their wheelhouse. To me, if uh, making a movie is easy, like, it, this, they make this look very easy. And I almost was like, okay, you've done this, and I enjoyed it. Now I want to see you tackle the oil prices rise 30% in three. Like, dude, like, really push yourself. You, you want them to pull an Adam McKay is what A you little want. bit, yeah. I'm like, I'm ready for them to really stretch themselves and show me the full range. Because this, to me, is like shooting fish in a barrel for them. It's funny, but... I want, I want more. I'm ready for more. I'm ready for those guys to, to challenge themselves. Yeah. Well, we both think you should check that out. Yep. And really quickly, two more. One I have seen and one Matt has seen. You want to go first with uh, one of this summer's many sequels? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles colon Out of the Shadows. The good news is I found this movie to be slightly better than the, than the last one. The bad news is I thought the last one was one of the worst movies of the decade. I yep. thought the, the last one was just objectionably terrible. I was almost offended. And it's not a case of me being like, well, the, the Ninja Turtles, this, they have changed the core mythology of the Ninja Turtles. This is an outrage. I really don't care what they do to the Ninja Turtles, but it did seem like that first movie, I wouldn't say misunderstood, but just was was operating a completely baffling way where they tried to make a very serious movie out of the Ninja Turtles. Michael Bay, of all people, producing a serious... It's like, they're the freaking Ninja Turtles. They're turtles with goofy names and they wear masks for no reason and they they make they eat pizza and they live in the sewers like you got to embrace what you are you got to know what you are at least this movie does seem to know what it is the new movie is a little bit sillier and and more fun and the characters don't mope all the time and they can they they can crack jokes and that said the 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 story is just so stupid i will say that probably i would expect ninja turtle fans to like this one a lot better and if you have a ninja turtle fan in your life like a young kid they'll probably enjoy it to us enough and i did appreciate that it really embraced the goofy side of this material with like killer living sentient brains from other dimensions who live in the (laughs) in the stomachs of robots and uh, Tyler Perry plays Baxter Stockman, the mad scientist, and he's pretty goofy and silly. Uh, so I, I appreciated that. It's just – it's still an, a, a not very good Ninja Turtles movie. And it's the, – the, the weird thing is these, these like live-action Ninja Turtles, they're obviously CGI, and they just look crappy to me. And at this point, it's like I, – I was just watching going, okay, so it's CGI Ninja Turtles – they're fighting this CGI brain in a CGI technodrome thing. 
and uh, and the whole thing is is digital. Just make just make a cartoon. Why are why are we putting why are we forcing Will Arnett to pretend like he's happy to be in this movie? Just just make a cartoon. I think that would maybe make everyone happier. It certainly would make me happier. Anyway, that's that's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles colon out of the shadows. Allison, what about you? You saw this is like boys like this, uh, girls like this. Definitely is. You yeah. saw me before you. I did. Uh, this is the new romantic weepy uh i don't it's not quite ya i it's based on a book that was not marketed as as a young adult novel though it does feel in line with fault in their stars and if i stay and other recent movies that have really embraced the idea of death as something that is extra or like the potential for death as something that is extra romantic yeah uh and this is based on a novel by jojo moyes um that did really well but is uh in movie form, something that I was I was not particularly fond of. Uh, it, in fact, it's kind of it's a movie that has started a big debate over between like disabled disa- disabled activists and um, fans of the book, and I've gotten caught up in the middle of it because of my review. But Amelia Clark plays Lou, who is a local girl who gets assigned a job to be a caretaker essentially for a man man named Will played by Sam Claflin, who is, uh, he has paraplegia or he has quadriplegia. He's paralyzed basically from, uh, in most of his limbs because of an accident that happened two years earlier. And he's embittered and he, uh, he has unbeknownst to her, at least at first vowed to die, to go to Switzerland and to commit suicide. Switzerland, assisted suicide is legal in Switzerland. So he's going to go. Uh, He's promised his parents six months in which, I guess, essentially six months to convince him to live. Sell me on life. Yes. Uh, And in part, then Lou takes on this responsibility of being this like perky girl that he, uh, chatty, as he calls her, who... um, he starts introducing to things like subtitled films and what Paris is like, and they fall in love. Uh, and then, and I'm going to spoil this movie because oh. it is the main. So okay, so, spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! And then he says he's going to die anyway, and then he dies. <laughs> I don't. I, I think that, and I've heard the book is better at this, but I think is something that the movie really misses out on, which is that. Uh, this is a character who is not supposed to be wanting to die just because he is disabled, but that he is in pain, that he feels you know, basically uncomfortable in his body now. And so to and the extent w- with which, even though he has fallen in love, he doesn't see a life for himself beyond this. The movie, I think, in condensing the story and also in kind of trying to give it a little bit of a gloss, leaves most of that out. And so instead, it seems like it's about a man who, because he can no longer be an extreme athlete slash uh, masterful in bed, uh, decides that he doesn't want to live anymore. And I think that that both comes I across... I can see the issue yes, there. Yes, I can understand it being offensive uh, if you are disabled and don't understand why being in a wheelchair should mean that you have less of a right to live uh, or that your life is less worth living. But also from a the perspective of a romance, I think it just drove me nuts because I, ju- I just felt like... I mean, like, like, what a kind of weird, terribly manipulative thing to have your romance be about. Yeah. To be basically about, show me that, show me that I should want to live. And then, right. oh, it didn't work out, but, uh, but this was great. Uh, so, so what we're saying is, go see the movie that was the least successful of right. these three movies That's that we just true. talked that about. We liked really the movie well. that bombed hard. Yeah. And we disliked the movies that made tens of millions of dollars. 
Yep. We're perverse like that. Movies now more than ever. All right. Well, let's move on to behind the eight ball. We wrap things up on every episode of Film Spotting SVU by giving you a countdown of three new releases on streaming to listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And then we each pick one random film from each other's my lists. My lists. And uh, yeah, that's how we do it. Allison, who's going first? Do you want me to go first? No, I want to go first. Okay, fine. Well, let's start with three new releases. Okay, first up, new to Netflix is uh, a movie that I saw at Toronto, I think, uh, maybe two years ago, and that it's been on my mind since, so I'm happy that it's on Netflix to see it again. It is called Magical Girl. It is this kind of spiky, dark Spanish thriller from director Carlos Vermut. Uh, it's about a few characters, including one who is a man who is so desperate to get together enough money to buy his terminally ill daughter the extremely expensive costume from her favorite anime series that she wants, that he gets pulled into a blackmail scheme that goes in directions that no one expected. And then a housewife... Uh, who's got a real dark side um, and who gets also pulled into this scheme and who has a history that you slowly learn at, learn about, but that you see has left her body covered with scars. Um, so a lot of interesting stuff there uh, and a lot of weird twists in that one. Magical Girl on Netflix. New to Tubi TV is Hollywood Shuffle, the very ahead of its time 1987 comedy that was co-written by, directed by, and stars Robert Townsend, and is based in part on Townsend's experiences working in the film industry, particularly as an actor. Uh, His character auditions for parts in which he's often told he's not black enough. Uh, and while he dreams of playing this diversity of meaty roles, including Shakespeare and uh, superheroes, uh, he actually struggles and gets is very conflicted over getting cast in a lead part that's basically a terrible stereotype. Um, so that is Hollywood Shuffle. That's on Tubi TV. And finally, new to both Hulu and Amazon Prime, The Rules of Attraction, Roger Avery's breathtakingly bleak uh, but funny caustic Brett Easton Ellis adaptation starring James Vanderbeek, Shannon Tossman, and Ian Summerholder. It's now 14 years old, this movie. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Uh, it's not my favorite uh, Ellis adaptation. That would be Mary Heron's American Psycho, which I love. Sure, sure. But for what it's worth, I think it is the truest Brett Easton Ellis adaptation. Uh-huh. And that is on Hulu and Amazon Prime. Okay. How about two listener recommendations? Okay. I got two short ones. First up, one from Twitter from Thomas Johnstone, who is Pancakes Now on Twitter. Uh, he wrote, I enjoyed They Look Like People on Netflix. It's like Frailty and Take Shelter had a mumblecore baby which is quite the elevator pitch, mm. and I, I'm sold. <laughs> so thank you, Thomas, for that. And then we have one from Martin, who writes, I can offer Remember the Titans. The movie hits all the right buttons for me with its mixture of inspirational message, humor, tragedy, American football, music, and a small dose of idiosyncratic characters and moments. A guilty pleasure for sure, given the movie's 3.3 rating on Letterboxd and 45% on Metacritic, but I really, really like it and rewatch it regularly. Maybe a guilty pleasures movie could be a nice idea for a film spotting SVU segment. Not bad idea, Martin. It's definitely something we'll keep in mind. Maybe an upcoming episode mm-hmm. we'll have a, a guilty pleasure off as our <laughs> listener's choice. I like it. Okay, and one film chosen finally by number from your my list. Well, you gave me number eight, which is Extraordinary Tales. This is an animated anthology of five Edgar Allan Poe stories, uh, including the voices of Roger Corman, Guillermo del Toro, Christopher Lee, and Julian Sands. I 
it came and went in theaters and it was one that I remember taking notice of. So when it popped up on Netflix recently, I added it. Okay. All right, Matt, are you ready? Yes. Okay. Give me three new releases. All right. First up, one of my favorite movies of last year, new to Amazon Prime and Hulu. It's Love and Mercy, the unusual biopic about the life of Beach Boy frontman Brian Wilson. It's set in two different time periods and stars two different actors as Brian Wilson. You have Paul Dano giving what I thought was one of the best performances of last year as the young Brian Wilson as he records Pet Sounds. And then you have John Cusack playing the older Brian Wilson many years later after he's lost his way as a result of his own mental illness. And actually, this would have been a good uh, Q-Shots movie, too, for this podcast. It was very timely. Uh, it's it, Honestly, it's hard to imagine that John Cusack and Paul Dano are the same guy. They look nothing alike, but they're both very good and the two halves of the movie I think work well together to talk to one another and kind of build this portrait of this very complicated and very talented guy so that's Love and Mercy you can watch that now on Amazon Prime or on Hulu Next up, one of the American indies of the late 1990s that got a lot of attention and acclaim in its day but has kind of fallen into obscurity a bit so I thought I would recommend it here it's called Yuli's Gold starring Peter Fonda in one of his very best performances he plays Yuli, this uh, war veteran, beekeeper. He's caring for his grandchildren while his son is in prison. It's mostly a character study of this guy fighting to protect his family, care for his family. And it's a great performance by Peter Fonda. I, I remember seeing this movie. I remember this movie being like raved about on Siskel and Ebert and seeing it and being like, wow, this is really great. And uh, it is really great. And you don't hear a lot about it these days, but it's worth checking out. Yuli's Gold, available now on Hulu. Finally, if you are looking to wash the taste of X-Men Apocalypse out of your mouth and remind yourself that Brian Singer can, in the right circumstances, direct a really good movie, The Usual Suspects is now available on Netflix. Another uh, seminal indie film of the 1990s. This one probably is a little more remembered, a little more canonized through the years, thanks to its very noirish narrative and famous twist ending. It was written by Christopher McQuarrie, who's now also, uh, all these years later, become a major director in his own right. He made the first Jack Reacher movie. i got to say the first. They're now making a second. <laughs> and he also made The Last Mission Impossible, which was really, really good. So, uh, yeah. this And, of course, it also put uh, Kevin Spacey on the map, really, in a big way as a film actor. If you've never seen it, now you can watch it on Netflix, The Usual Suspects. Okay, two listener recommendations. Our first comes from maybe one of our most longtime listeners, Joe in Astoria, who writes in every so often with some recommendations. Thank you, Joe. He writes this time, Matt and Allison, I wanted to give a recommendation to Brian De Palma's 1973 film, Sisters. It's been a favorite of mine for a while, and I finally got to see it on the big screen as part of the De Palma retrospective at New York City's Metrograph Theater, And that's one of the cool new theaters here in New York. They're doing a whole retro of Brian De Palma's films coinciding with that new documentary about him. While not being his first film, Joe writes, it's De Palma's first thriller and it has more energy, style, audacity and creativity than about a hundred other filmmakers debuts that come to mind. You could say it's a film that has it all voyeurism, sex, murder, hypnosis, Siamese twins, masterful use of split screens, a TV game show based on peeping Tom ism. An experimental madhouse, an amazing score by Bernard Herrmann. With the new documentary about De Palma coming out, I'm hoping this film gets its rightful place in the conversation about his filmography and about classic 70s American films in general. You can stream it on Hulu thanks to the Criterion Collection 
or rent it through the usual suspects. And that was from Joe in Astoria. Thank you, Joe. And we also got an email here from Dan, and Dan wasn't necessarily giving this as a recommendation. He was correcting us for leaving something out, or at least wanting us to have mentioned it, and I figured let's use it as a recommendation right here. Dan writes, "Uh, I love the show, love the analysis and the new recommendations, but I was surprised you overlooked 1971's Straw Dogs during last week's Home Invasion films. It's one of the grittiest Sam Peckinpah movies with Dustin Hoffman in his early prime getting mixed up in some very dark events that he would normally shy away from. There's a very creepy laugh involved as well. The entire bloody climax from Fear, which Allison had as one of her recommendations, where Mark Wahlberg is seen through the peephole yelling insanely trying to break inside with his buddies is completely derivative of Straw Dogs, only not as satisfying. And that is from Dan. I'm sure you wanted to encourage people to see a less famous movie in fear than Straw Dogs, Allison. I feel like we also, I was trying to search to see if we've talked about it on SVU, but it might have been back in. Might have been the old show. The old show where when they remade Straw Dogs, we talked about. Got a very (laughs) unpopular remake a couple of years ago, so we might have talked about it then. Yeah, we we try to pick less. Uh, right, less famous ones from time to time. Sometimes, when it's basically we just do whatever the hell we want. Yeah, it is kind of, but that is an excellent home invasion movie. Yes. So thank you, Dan, for writing in with that. All right, and one from your my list. You gave me number two, and right now number two because I am a serious film critic and I do my research is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles three. <laughs> Which I watched part of last week to prepare for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, number two, Out of the Shadows. Yes, this is the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles where the Ninja Turtles go back in time. Actually, it's pretty fascinating because there's this very strange plot, Allison. Hear me okay. out here, where okay. the turtles go back in time, and it's it, there's it almost seems like they're they, they they existed before they even go back there. They, you know, it's like a time loop. It almost suggests that free will does not exist. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 is actually a powerful statement about destiny and fate and how our lives are not our own. And it made me contemplate very serious things. Does someone rap a plot song in this one? I can neither confirm nor deny. All right. Well, let's move on then. Okay. So our listeners' choice options for next time. And here's what happened. We looked at the options. Obviously, we looked to see is there anything new coming out, maybe new shows, new movies, recent movies that are new to streaming, new to VOD. We didn't love the options. Not a lot out there. So what Allison suggested, which I thought was a good idea, is let's go back in time, much like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and pick a year and pick a couple of movies from that year and and then end up talking about one of them. And so we decided, because it is 2016, we would talk about 1996. 20 years ago these movies came out, which is kind of hard to believe in some of the cases, and uh, especially the one that I watched a million times because I can't believe it's that old and I'm that old. Right. I do want to say also, I think we talk a lot about being like, oh, the perfect thing to watch on cable or whatever. Right. I, I think that, and I do I do sense that, that idea of the movies that would run in on loops that you would watch because they were always on HBO yes. or because they were on, like, I, I feel like that... It's going, it's going away. away. Yes. It's going away because you it have is. streaming. And so the yes. idea that you had these movies that you would watch 
staples of often like not even in a hole like again and again because they would just be on tv like wallpaper right you'd watch the end of of movie y because show x that you liked was coming on next and you had the channel already on it right and i so i part of the reason i want to bring these up is because i think they are movies that did run on cable quite a bit but that i haven't seen any of them for a long time and so i'm interested to revisit because I have seen one of these a lot as well. Uh, mm-hmm. The one of the other ones was acclaimed, but I haven't seen I an think, Oscar winner multiple I years. Was yes. it the Best Picture winner of nineteen ninety six? Both two of them are. All of them are acclaimed. All of them are like, acclaimed. One of them one is particularly prestigious. Yes. So consider this our tribute to the, the bygone the, era. Yes, Not the only television of these... wallpaper that were <laughs> that was uh, yeah. multiple movies that got licensed for cable. Maybe that'll be our theme. Uh, whatever wins, it'll be TV wallpaper movies. That'd <laughs> yeah. be pretty good. Ones actually, ones that you watched often. Yeah. yeah. All right. Our first option. I have it here. It is available right now on Hulu. It is Jerry Maguire. It's one of the seminal romantic comedies of the 1990s. One of the seminal Tom Cruise performances of his entire career. And also one of the seminal Cameron Crowe movies. Uh, This movie's huge success, and it was a huge blockbuster. It definitely helped him get almost famous and and make that sort of less commercial movie. Uh, It also made Renee Zellweger a star. It also created a very famous catchphrase. Allison? Uh, Show me the money. Okay, two catchphrases. I forgot the other one. You had me at hello. Oh, wow. You were going to go for that. Yeah. There's literally a scene in which someone makes someone else yell the catchphrase over and over again. Well, but I love you had me at hello. That's a good one, too. So it has two catchphrases. It made Cuba Gooding Jr. An Oscar winner. Yes. I was going to say like a star, but it's been a complicated career for Cuba Gooding Mm, Jr. It has. Um, Yes, but an Oscar winner. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons that this would be interesting to look back at because of where Tom Cruise's career is now, where... Cameron, Cameron Crowe's Crow's career, career is now a, really a, he has a new show, a new show coming out, out on Showtime, yeah. I think, called Roadies, which is back in that almost famous territory. So, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why this would be an interesting movie to revisit, one we've both seen several times, but not in a while. So that's Jerry Maguire, available on Hulu. Uh, the second film on this this list is one that is really the most successful in terms of awards. Yeah, and it, the one we've seen the least. We've both seen it, but... I've I've seen it one time. I've seen it maybe twice. Okay. Uh, It is The English Patient, which is on Hulu and Netflix, uh, the 1996, of course, romance slash drama slash tragedy uh, directed by Anthony Minghella and uh, based on the novel by Michael Andachi and starring Ray Fiennes and Kristen Scott Thomas as the main lovers, as well as Willem Dafoe and Juliette Binoche and Naveen Andrews and Colin Firth. What a cast. Uh, you know, I, this was a movie that I, honestly, I, I did not like that much when it came out because I thought it was, it was cheesy. I thought it was, a it was too sentimental. It's under a very, the guise like, kind of, of very classic Oscar movie, right. very stodgy and it's a period piece and it's a romance, right. historical drama. Right, right. Uh, and I'm kind of curious, uh, you know, uh, I was a teenager when that came out. Yeah, it was, it's not a teenager's movie. I was extremely resistant yes. at that point also to any I. trace of sentimentality. Sure. Uh, and maybe I'm, I'm still a bit resistant, but not nearly as much now that I'm soft and in my old age. Um, but I would be curious to revisit it. This movie was so acclaimed at yeah. the time, but I think that it is not the movie from 1996 that we probably remember the most. You know, there were a lot of uh, fine films that came out then, many of which I think have gone on to have a better reputation Absolutely. in retrospect than, than The English Patient. But that is The English Patient, and it is on Hulu and Netflix. I do think it's interesting that there are these movies that 
that linger and remain. And then there's the ones that sometimes got a lot more attention at the time and they kind of vanish into thin air. I think the English patient is kind of one of them. I was like, I was like, like I was saying with Yuli's gold, it's like, I remember there was so much about Peter Fonda and Yuli's gold. It's like, and then they don't necessarily remain. It's an interesting phenomenon. All right. Our third option, which is available right now on both Netflix and Hulu. If you have showtime, the Showtime add-on is Swingers. Uh, this one is one of the seminal indie films of the 1990s. It made John Favreau and Vince Vaughn indie darlings. It launched their careers. Of course, they've gone on to become one of the biggest directors in Hollywood and one of the biggest comedy stars of the last 20 years. Uh, it also helped launch a brief, renewed interest in swing music, Allison. It's hard to think of that these days. Big <laughs> bad that. voodoo daddy. Yep. Cherry poppin' daddies, squirrel nut zippers. Yep. I, I think that's all I got. I'd try to think if there was a fourth one, but uh, there's three. Of course, it was also directed by Doug Lyman, who's gone on to have a very successful, uh, very big career. It was really the uh, the starting point for a lot of important people, and of course, for quite. A, it also had a catchphrase: "Money and you don't you're even so know money, it." You're so money. You're so money, and you don't even know it, et cetera, et cetera. It was said by many people. I feel I feel like we're so old. We're like, back in the 90s, people used to say to people, you're so money. They yeah. really did. I okay. said it. I, I feel like this movie is also the most television wallpaper of the three. Absolutely. Like, and, it, it's, and it's the one of the three that I've definitely seen the most. Same here. Yeah. and But not for years as yeah. well. So. Probably getting close to a decade since I watched it. So very interested to revisit this one as well. So it's a good trio. I don't know what's going to win. I don't know what I would want to win. But I think you've got three very strong options there. Option three, again, is Swingers, available right now on Netflix or hulu if you have showtime all right well which of these movies should we revisit and we promise not to be terribly nostalgic about them i don't make that promise I at promise, all i promise i will keep matt in check uh for the next episode of film spotting streaming video unit you can always send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com and of course send any comments uh angry letters and incredible compliments to svu at filmspottingsvu.com as well or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, June 13th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will come out around Tuesday, June 21st. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the review you pick. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer, and you can follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice. We share more streaming suggestions. Maybe uh, next week, Allison, we can share some other 1996 movies. Yeah. We can celebrate the year that was 1996, because <laughs> actually there were quite a few we had to choose from. We, we, we picked the three we thought were the best, but there was at least a half dozen others that we could have chosen. So maybe we can recommend some others. We can all go back, all the way back to the year 1996. On our next episode. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. 